Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Oh, it's true. Rich Kimball here. Carrie Haskell as well. And this is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 153. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Got a couple of fun conversations for you this week. A little bit later on, we talk with legendary and award-winning recording engineer and producer Bill Schnee about his five-plus decades in the music business, all chronicled in a new memoir entitled Chairman at the Board. But up first, a returnee to the podcast this week. Love having her on our radio show. Very talented actress who's been working in the business for many years, but took a lengthy break to go back to college and earn a graduate degree in social work. But she has bounced back with a hit series produced and directed by her brother-in-law, David E. Kelly, called Big Sky, with some brand new episodes coming to ABC very soon. Here's our conversation with actress Dee Dee Pfeiffer. We're so happy to have you back with us. Thanks for joining us again. Well, thank you for having me back. I was very excited. You're my first like callback. Yeah, when Anthony uh, said you were out there, I said, just sign us up. And he said, oh, but you've already talked to DD." I said, yes, that's why we want to talk with her again. (laughs) And I I have a lot to say always. So (laughs) (laughs) I can help you. The last time we talked with you, Big Sky had not gone on the air yet. And we, we talked about what it was going to be about. But I'm not sure you could have prepared us for this show. Wow, this thing is crazy. It's great. Now you understand why I was being a little sketchy in my description of the show because it's really hard to describe it without showing your hand on, you know what I mean? Because it's such a cliffhanger after cliffhanger, but the but the pilot just sets up the tempo that nobody is safe. Watch, you know, watch your back. Even like me, I'm I'm Denise and I don't know I'm safe until I get the script. Since I'm still alive. You know what I mean? <laughs> Well, Denise is is right in the middle of everything. And I love the fact that, you know, she's not afraid to call anybody on anything, including uh, Cody early on gets you right in his face and lets him know how it is. Yeah, I love it. Like when um, David described Denise as uh, uh, gossip is her currency. (laughs) And I love that because it just kind of helped me launch the way she thinks and the way she feels. And she does everything out of love and she's a smart ass and it's always... But she does know everything. She does. She's one of those people who kind of knows everything, but she doesn't want to hurt anybody with that information. But she will also step in there in your lane. She'll get in your lane a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) But she'll jump back out. But she'll jump in there. She'll nudge you and then jump back out, right? That's what makes her such a a great character. And we're so excited. There are going to be new episodes. So so walk us through the timeline. Is this because you had to shut down for a while uh, due to COVID and then restart? Yeah, honestly, um, it is so weird, Rich. I'm still confused. The COVID thing made everything so discombobulated. We have this weird shooting schedule, weird airing. It's like even when um, we were airing and then somebody goes, oh, you're you're done. And I'm like, what do you mean we're done? You know, and then I had to ask the other cast. So, yeah, we're going off the air and then we're coming back. And I'm like, that's just so strange. What is going on? Um but yeah, this is all COVID related, but we're really hoping to get back on track. Like right now, as we speak, I'm, we're finishing up the last two of the na- next, I think, what is it, eight that, that you're all going to see. 
Overall, yeah. but what's it been like shooting in Vancouver? I love Canada. I love the Canadians. They are just the sweetest population of people. Our crew, my God, we beat them up and they're still smiling and they're sweet and they're tired. They're tired, but God bless them. They hang in there with us. Um, I love Canada. I really do. And I have all these Canadian birds. Did I tell you about my birds that are out on the balcony? That no. No, fill us in on that. Oh, you know, I think when I, you interviewed me, I think it was the very beginning of my insanity. Um, because I've been here for eight months and the whole COVID thing, when I did go home for a minute to see my boys and my fur babies, I had to come back and quarantine two weeks each time. <laughs> I did that three times. I spent two week chunks three times with myself. Rich, let me tell you, I don't like myself that much spending that kind of time with myself. I discovered that was my, uh, I like told my boys, please don't make me have to go home again. I can't do that. I just can't sit with myself for two more weeks. But in the process, I made all these friends with these Canadian birds and they have names and they have personalities. We have exchanges. It's on my Instagram, DD5 for official. Yeah, you can see it on there. Gilligan, Skipper, Gangsta, Big Boy. I have them all out there. <laughs> I love it. Hey, well, uh, next week, we've got John Carroll Lynch on the show. You have John tell him I said hi. Yes. And, uh, well, man, I guess I don't want to drop any spoilers, but if people didn't see it, yeah. let's just say well, it didn't end all that well for Rick. Well, you know, that's what's so hard because some people still haven't seen the show, so they're going to go binge it before they start up again. So, again, I'm always really careful with – I always just say the pilot, not giving away any spoiler alert, because the pilot sets up the tempo that nobody is safe on this show. So let's just say that includes everybody, including characters that you, you some you may not be surprised that they got, you know, <laughs> killed, <laughs> but you might be surprised how they got taken out, right? Yes. <laughs> Lagarski is definitely one of those characters. I won't say what happens, so let's just say, even when I read the script, I went, get out. <laughs> That's how they take Ligarski out? I go, that is cool. I mean, not that it's cool that he got killed, but. Well, yeah. there's, let's just say there's justice, there's karma. Yeah, that, that was karma. That was karma. That was some good karma right there, especially because I know Brooke, who plays Marilee. We've known each other for years and years. We go way back. So when she came on the show, none of us saw, you know, what was going on with any of our characters. You know what I mean? You know, I in this this season, you're going to see that Denise actually dates. I didn't even know that I dated Denise. <laughs> I mentioned a line how I dated some guy who smelled like this cologne who was an auctioneer, and then that disappears. And then there's another line where I talk about going out with a guy named Franklin, who we go UFO spotting. <laughs> and guess where they came up with that idea? Hmm. From me. I Why did I know that? pointing <laughs> <laughs> at me. <laughs> yeah, because I think that that stuff is so darn interesting. Just all of that stuff. Ancient alien theorists, all that stuff. So I said, let's make Denise just totally into that stuff. Because it makes her like the other 300 million people in, this, in the country that believe in that stuff. She, I'm not alone. Denise ain't alone. No, I, I think it's really fascinating. You know who else believes uh, is uh, Dave Foley. We had him on a while back. And and he's you know, he's convinced that a lot of stuff is being hidden from us that the folks don't want us to know. Well, and it's interesting, beside the whole government thing and what they do, because they're going to do what they do. But if really, if you just look at a lot of the stuff that um, archaeologists have discovered, and if you start looking at ancient Mayan you know, paintings on these caves that are like 50,000 million years old, what have you, especially those that are across the country, all over, and the similarities, you start to look at that and you go, how did... 
how did how could they they weren't um, talking to each other they didn't know about each other and they have a lot of similar things that kind of lead to this other higher intelligence let's just say that's a possibility that gave us all the, a lot of our knowledge which to me makes a lot more sense than you know a bunch of people make, making those not the pyramids that mimic the original pyramid I'm talking the original pyramids like you know and um that stuff's crazy, right? Absolutely. Uh, we're yeah. talking with Dee Dee Pfeiffer here on Downtown. So, <laughs> were you were you surprised at the success of this show? Because it I mean it became a hit right out of the box, and then I was looking at the numbers. I think you had your highest ratings of the year in the final episode. You know, I got to say, Rich, I'm so out of the loop. That's the joke on the set. <laughs> I'm like, I'm always the last to know everything because I just stay in my little birdcage. It's COVID over here, so I don't really do anything other than go to work, right? So, and feed the Canadian birds on my balcony. So I'm always like the last to know. And then I heard from the cast, well, we're doing really well. And I'm like, oh my God, that's fantastic. I mean, I watched it. I really liked it, but I'm biased, right? But then they were like, no, Didi, really, the numbers are crazy. And they also think that Denise is in on it. And I went, oh, <laughs> I was like, really? And they're like, so I found that to be fascinating. I find our numbers to be flattering. It's really flattering because, you know, we are working hard to entertain and um, it's hard to be away from your family, your friends and quarantining and what have you. It's not a woe is me story or us. Listen, we're, we're employed. So that's already mm. a plus. Um, but COVID makes things definitely more complicated. But um, and, and, you know, ratings are never a guarantee. And I don't think we talked about this last time you were on, but you, you were on a big ratings hit with Sybil with a, an incredibly talented cast and. And then the network kind of pulled the rug out from under you guys when you were uh, you were doing well and people loved you. The critics loved you and nominated for all every award out there and doing well in the ratings. Yeah, that was um, that was my first starring my first starring role, like on a series, you know, a series regular. So I was a newbie. You know, I was a brand. I was like a deer in the headlights that whole show. Um, crazy show. Lots of talented people. Lots of talented people. I met them. Um, some phenomenal people on that show. Um, but it it was funny because before I even got cast, I was watching this weird show called AdFab that no one I knew knew about it, right? And so I was addicted to it. I thought it was the funniest show because it was just so not PC. It was just so wrong. It was right. And then when I read the pilot of Sybil, I went, this reminds me of AdFab. I love this. <laughs> I was really jazzed to get that role because it happened to have been, because um, yeah, because Sybil came from, you know, the idea of AppFab, right. which is, yeah, two women just get into a lot of trouble. And I, I miss this somehow along the way. And I, I'm disappointed because I'm a big Meatloaf fan. I didn't realize oh. you were in Meatloaf <laughs> to Helen back. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Rich. I played Mrs. Loaf. I played <laughs> Meatloaf's wife. And um, I remember the, the best part about that was I, I did it with Earl, who played, um, he was in, in um, something about Mary, I think it was. He played um, uh, 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 Cammy Diaz's brother. And anyways, um, Earl was hysterical. He was so great. But we got to age 20 years in that. Right. On a biography about Meatloaf and his story. Yeah. So 20 years I got. And so I had all these color wigs because she went through all these different looks. So it was super fun. And I met Cammy Diaz on the making of that because she was filming next door and Earl knew her. And I'd never met her before. And when I went over to meet her, I was a redhead and she looked like a dude because she was doing the Mission Impossible. Oh, no. The movie where she looked like a dude. The girl. Charlie's Angels. Yes. Yeah. 
we met each other not looking at all like the way we normally look and yet people say we're similar and yet we, I, I go you look like a dude she goes since when are you a redhead and we were just like <laughs> laughing right <laughs> by the way as, as we're talking Carrie my producer here is showing me some of the pictures of your bird friends those are incredible yeah, they're my they're my buddies. Some of my people, some of my people, my friends on Instagram are like, "Are you the bird whisperer?" I'm like, I'm a 57 year old woman trying not to jump off the balcony from isolation and away from everything I know and love, my children and my animals. So they, I started looking out the balcony one day, and I was like, "These are really beautiful, like pigeons." It actually started with a moth. Yeah, just on my Instagram, I named a moth in my room when I first got here. And then he flew out and I made this whole story how now we're divorced and I kicked him out. And then the moth came back and I gave him a second chance. And then the moth turned into the pigeons, which turned into the seagulls. And uh, now I'm not sure the neighbors like me very much. <laughs> the birds love me. The neighbors, they're glad when I leave in two weeks <laughs> to come back home. <laughs> Especially the people directly below you, I'm guessing. Well, yeah, I do clean up their gifts that they leave me every day. <laughs> Um, and I literally go buy huge loaves of bread just for them to keep them all wheat, of course, because it's important that the seagulls get all wheat bread. I don't want to mess up their digestive systems. <laughs> <laughs> now, when we talked last time, we also talked about uh, the work you had done over the last decade or so, going back to school and earning your master's degree. Uh, Carrie's daughter has graduated, and now she's off to graduate school uh, as a social worker as well. So. Um, any advice that you can pass along here? A master's program is equivalent to like boot camp. It's the time you get to pull all your skills together. And the most important thing I would say is don't be a hero. Don't think you can be Superman or Superwoman or Super They and think you can do it alone. Just reach out for help. Get those study groups. Reach next to you to left and right. Get their emails and do this together because the bulk of the work is huge. And you really kind of, by design, it's too much to do. I mean, especially if you've got a reading disorder and a learning disability like I did. So you lean on these people, these groups, these study groups to help each other out. You take chapter two and three, I'll take four and five, and you do seven and nine, and then we'll write notes and then we'll switch and we'll have conversations. And they actually want you to do that. They want you to collaborate. It's it's team thinking, right? Group, group think. So I say lean on people. And guess what? These people you'll be friends with, I still am, my cohort. I'm still friends with them years later. And we got through boot camp together. And that's <laughs> like awesome, right? You can say we did it. And you will. It'll be tough. But tell her I said she will get through it. I, I will pass that along. Yeah, she's she's a little apprehensive about yeah. ma working on the master's. But, uh, yeah, she's wrapping up her, uh, her, her undergrad internship right now. And already starting interviews for the uh, the master's internship that she's going to have to be doing. Tell her the best part about grad school is your internship. Everything you learned in the books is like it's in your head. But then when you mm. actually go, you go into the field, now you got to work it. And you know what? Tell her I said this. Sometimes what I found, especially because I work with homeless in the, in the field, in the encampments with them, everything I learned, I had to throw it out. Just throw it out the door and just talk to them. Come to where they're at. And you can't lose if you just come to where they're at and just listen. A lot of times people just want to be listened to, right? Mm. And that alone is a skill set that no book can teach you. Yeah, right? that, that so is, she, yeah. she picked that up uh, in her current um, uh, assault response service uh, internship. So That's fantastic. 
tell her that like right now on screen and with the cast and the crew, I'm actually using some of my social worker skills and I use them with Denise as well. So tell her she'll never know where she's going to apply these skills. And um, more importantly, I want to say, tell her, I said, thank thank her for her service beforehand because people who go into the social welfare industry, they don't get paid even proper, not even close. But the fact that they willing to go through all that schooling to go out and help people is uh, they're like walking angels, literally, you know, they really are. So tell her, I said, thank you. I will absolutely pass that along. Well, and we say thank you as well, Didi. It's so great to visit with you once again. Can't wait for these new episodes coming up next week, uh, Tuesday night, the 13th at 10 p.m., brand new episodes of Big Sky. We'll see what happens to Denise and, and, and the dating, too. Yeah, and uh, yeah, well, I mean, she hasn't really gone on a date yet. I'm waiting for that. She, she may have take her hair down for once. But Rich, it's the client saucers. This next episode, this next season is the client saucers, and you want to meet a messed up family? Oh boy, <laughs> buckle up again. This, this, yeah, this next season is going to be crazy. That's fantastic. Well, we can't wait for it. It's so good to talk with you again, Dee Dee. Appreciate you making time for us. Say hi to the birds for us. Oh, <laughs> follow me on Instagram. You'll see them all. <laughs> all right. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye, Rich. Dee Dee Pfeiffer talking with us about Big Sky and more here on Downtown the Podcast. We'll take a break for a quick word from Cross Insurance, and then we're back with recording engineer Bill Schnee. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit crossinsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. One of the many songs... They used the talents of our next guest on the podcast, recording engineer and producer Bill Schnee, who writes about it all in a terrific new memoir called Chairman at the Board, recording the soundtrack of a generation. What a wonderful ride it has been for you. You have literally worked with everybody in the music business. And, uh, well, as a, as a fellow only child, music is much better than an imaginary friend, right? <laughs> it sure was for me. Yep. Now, growing up, I thought this was very interesting. You were a fan of Herb Alpert, one of my personal favorites, and also Henry Mancini. What was it that drew you to their work? You know, I, I think uh, I, I, I'm very lucky that I, I love all kinds of music, and uh, and it's kind of changed over the years, I, I mean, as I was growing up. But the uh, the Mancini records, I was attracted to, to the sound as well as to the uh, music itself. But, you know, I watched Peter Gunn, and so when that came out, I went and bought that album and, and then saw the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's, that kind of thing, and bu buying soundtracks, and I just loved the way they sounded and, and became a fan of Hank's work. Well, as you heard, we have appropriated his Peter Gunn theme as the theme of our show as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It worked better for Craig Stevens than it does for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you had the music dream like so many people, and, and like so many, uh, you joined a band. Tell us a little bit about your experience with the L.A. Teens. Yeah, uh, the L.A. Teens. Yeah, we uh, uh, started a band my senior year of high school. My parents moved to uh, Los Angeles, and I've met some 
new friends and they were starting a band. So I got in with them and we uh, started writing songs and ultimately went and got, did a demo, a uh, couple of demos in a local recording studio. And one of the kids, mother knew someone who knew someone that was in the music business and that someone was a guy named gary usher gary was uh, uh lived rather close to the wilson beach boy wilson family in fact it was close with them and he wanted to be a beach boy but uh, didn't happen however he did write 409 and in my room with brian right. uh and he he signed us he had a new pr- uh, production deal with decca records and he signed us and and uh, yeah, we went into Capitol Studios, and and uh, in those days, you signed up for four sides. For you recorded four songs, they put out a single or two. If you managed to get a hit, then you ran in and cut six more sides. Uh, suffice it to say that we didn't do an album. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but you had some action yeah. in L.A. You, you posted a, a picture in the book of uh, of one of the charts when you were well just ahead of a, a little band from England. Yeah, I love that chart where we're ahead of the Beatles. Uh, of course, they were probably on their way up, and we were peaking. I don't know. Yeah, we we made some and we had we made some noise. That's for sure, but uh, not enough to, to stir the pot, so to speak. Now you would find your real calling a, a different role in the studio, and one of the people who had such an influence on your life was uh, the great Richie Podolor. How did you two get together? Well, uh, on, when we did our first session with Gary Usher at Capitol, he brought in. Richie, uh, as a guitarist, Richie is you know, a phenomenal musician, and he brought him in to augment the band with some guitar ideas. And uh, when we got dropped, I went to Richie had his studio, and I went to his studio and said, "You know, I really, you know, it's kind of a drag. We got dropped." And he said, "You, you guys were great. I can get you a, a deal. Go see this guy, Mike Curb. He's going to go places." <laughs> and sure, sure enough, Mike Curb has gone places, but. Uh, so we signed our second deal and went into a cut with Richie and went, cut the first track and came in and uh, play, he's playing it back. And I looked up at those speakers as the, the track was playing back. And I was just amazed because I, here we had recorded at two of the best studios in Hollywood and Richie's studio was a lot funkier, but the, the emotion that I was hearing in our band for, from this track that he cut was like something I'd never heard. And I, it was really an aha moment. And I literally stopped when it was over. I pointed at all the equipment and said, can you teach me how to do this? <laughs> and he said, no, I'm teaching Cooper. Get out there and do another track. <laughs> and, uh, but that was the moment. That, that was the aha moment that I, I knew I wanted to do that. And then he gave you uh, really your first opportunity working with a, a band that I think is, is one of the most underrated bands in, in rock music history, Three Dog Night. Yeah. Yeah, he, he he was. Uh, that's the funny thing. So I went off. I went off uh, and found a, a real cheap studio that would where I could get my feet wet, so to speak, and um, built it up. And all my aptitude was in math and science. And so where the left brain met the music, musical right, um, uh, engineering came very quickly to me. So uh, in just about two and a half years. After that first session with Richie, where I didn't know an equalizer from a limiter, uh, I managed, after two months of begging, to let him try me out on a session uh, with a demo. And I, and so he had me do a demo with, with some, a publishing with demo. And um, he said I did great. And so then I did another demo the next day. And 
How did, how did that client say? He said, you, they said, you did great. <laughs> they said, okay, why don't you come in tomorrow night and do Three Dog Night? And, of course, I froze in my tracks. And I couldn't believe my ears because Richie was only engineering them then. He would go on after that album. That was their second album, Suitable for Framing. After that, he went on to produce the long string of hits they had. But at that point, he was just engineering them. The, the producer was Gabriel Meckler, who also produced Steppenwolf that Richie had recorded and also went on to produce. And so it, it doesn't make an ounce of sense why he would turn over his biggest client <laughs> with a, a big group that had already had a hit and was working their way to be, you know, one of the biggest groups in the country, turn it over to this young snot-nosed kid. But I'm sure glad he did. We're talking with Bill Schnee on downtown, and that led uh, to another opportunity from one of the biggest names in the business when you got a call from Clive Davis. Right, yeah, that that was the big break. Uh, my my dad was a Jewish doctor, so um, many of you might know what that means. I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer or else. And uh, so I knew I couldn't be a doctor. So uh, I did start law school when I went to work for Richie. Uh, but uh, I, got to, I got through the first semester and got the grades as I started the second semester. And they, I'd been faking it. I just didn't have the time to do the reading with the sessions I was doing and and classwork. So I decided to quit for a year and a half. I had quit college for two and a half years chasing the LA teams. And so now I decided I'll quit for a year and a half and if music can make it great. If it doesn't, uh, I'll get the stupid degree. And uh, I was just about ready. A year went by and I was just about ready to enroll when a friend of mine got a deal with, with Clive and told him about me. And Clive called me and, you know, scared the bejeebies out of me. Uh, and said, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I think I'm going back to law school. And he said, no, no, I went to law school. If you have music in your blood, you know that's what you're going to want to do. And I said, well, I would love to, but, and he basically took the butt away. So, yeah, he, he, he gave me the, the shot that uh, kept me from being a lawyer. And my mother <laughs> convinced that, was convinced that the legal system is much better for it. But. <laughs> now, you've worked with so many interesting people through the years. And one of the people who keeps reappearing uh, in your book is is Richard Perry, a very talented guy. I thought it was interesting that you point out that, that sometimes he worked best uh, with those who weren't as willing to share their opinions. And uh, you mentioned the Pointer Sisters, who were just uh, very happy to take his direction and go, but not everybody was that way. Right. You know, I've always said that, you know, there, there's all different kinds of producers. There's the one on, on one end, like uh, the guy that can, uh, P. Diddy, for instance, can can, uh, you know, write the song, arrange the song, record the song, put the singer on it. If he doesn't like the way the singer sings it, he says, we'll find something else for you, and he sings it. He does. He can do anything and everything. So there's that one. And then on the complete other end, there's the kind I kind of call chemists, where they, they figure out what, uh, you know, what good engineer is, what, you know, and they, they have, usually have a good song sense, maybe arrangers, musicians, and they put all the pieces together and kind of shake it up. Um, Richard is, you know, definitely right, kind of like me, dead set in the middle. And there's no special producer for an artist. I mean, uh, the only thing that matters is that there's a good marriage between the two. And what I'm trying to say is that one kind of producer doesn't work for everybody. And I just found that Richard didn't work well with either super creative people or uh, groups for whatever reason. But uh, that's, but, you know, he, and that's terrible to say when I think about it because, uh, you know, Harry Nielsen talked about super creative. Mm. 
uh, he did fine with him, at least on the first album, Nielsen Schmilson. And, um, and of course, he, we did uh, three big albums for Carly Simon. Uh, you also worked uh, through Richard with Barbara Streisand, and you found her very easy to work with. Uh, she certainly knows what she wants, but I think she <laughs> yeah. seems like she appreciated your professionalism. Yeah, I, uh, I really feel like I've had favor with a lot of uh, artists that other people find trouble with, um, she being maybe the biggest one. Uh, I've, I've never met anyone else that can say what I can, which is I've never had the first problem with her. And I've worked with her, you know, uh, over the years. Um, but, you know, she's very demanding. She's very intelligent. She knows what she wants. And uh, and she acts fast and thinks fast, and I do too. But I, what I usually find that helps is to be able to tell people, tell an artist, you know, no, or you should not as much no as you really shouldn't do that. And, you know, she would look at me and say, well, why not? I said, well, because this actually is a tree. If we climb up this tree and get off on this branch over here, it's very likely to break and we're going to come tumbling down. In other words, if you tell them that you have their best interest in mind and, you know, can we find a better way to do this, that kind of thing, it works out really well. But, yeah, she's she's just been great with me. You mentioned Carly Simon, and your first opportunity was working with her on the No Secrets album. That earned you a Grammy nomination for Best Engineered Album. And I, I liked your description of Carly as being somewhere between uh, the approach of a, a Carol King and a Joni Mitchell, but with a much better voice than either one. Yeah. Yeah, I still, I just listened to that uh, No Secrets record the other day, and uh, I just find that, you know, that was the most artistic person I had worked with. That was pretty early in my career, uh, about three years in when I, from being professional three and a half or something. Uh, and the songwriting, her songwriting was just, uh, I thought, exquisite in that record. Uh, everything from the, the obvious pompous de de delivery of You're So Vain to uh, some of the more artistic things that are, that are on there. Just really beautiful. And, and you share the great story. I'm a huge Harry Nielsen fan, but you share the wonderful story of how Nielsen was there with the intent of singing backup on You're So Vain until somebody else wandered into the studio and, and Harry himself decided, well, this guy might do a better job. Yeah. And it, it's kind of funny because I, I, a lot of people don't even realize it until I tell him. And then that when next time you listen to it, you realize that that's Mick Jagger singing with her. And, uh, uh, because his voice has so much character, you, you might not have thought that it would work compared to Harry who can, you know, mold his voice to just melt in with any, anybody. Uh, but, but it uh, gave it a, I think it gave it a great character. It was a real shock for me to, to pull up the fader. It wasn't marked Mick uh, uh, on the 24 track. I only mixed that album. I recorded a lot of the, uh, the next two, but I only mixed that when it was done in England. And um, when I pulled up the background voice and heard it, I went, <laughs> wait a minute. I'm mixing a Rolling Stone. What is this? Well, you got to work with all the royalty, and I love the stories about uh, working with Ringo on his self-titled third album, uh, the last time that all three Beatles worked together, and really all the Beatles were involved because you, you crossed the pond to work with Paul and Linda. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very unfortunate that Paul had had a little problem with drugs here in the United States, and he wasn't allowed to come in for a while because... Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that what went on for that record was that the three Beatles all knew that their solo careers were going to do fine 
but maybe we should give Ringo a leg up. And that's what it felt like. And uh, I think enough of the bad blood had dried up in those almost three years from the breakup to where we were cutting Ringo that that if Paul could have come in the country, I'm pretty sure that the could well darn well could have been uh, a Beatle a full Beatle reunion. But when John Lennon came in, he the song he had for Ringo, uh, the the word got out, and from that day on, uh, John was only there the one night for the, on that album uh, for the one song he wrote. But the word got out, and there were TV trucks in the parking lot of Sunset Sound every night thereafter, waiting, hoping for a glimpse of the reunion i love the story too uh paul's contribution that i always thought was him playing the kazoo but that was really paul's vocal work and some of your engineering magic yeah <laughs> yes we, we we stumbled around for a little bit uh trying to find something to uh to give it a sound but finally got what we got and came off came off kind of fun i think some of the most interesting work, because I, I knew so little about how it worked, was a reading about uh, your work doing direct-to-disc recording. Can you explain what that high-wire act was all about? <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, you know, uh, in the beginning of, of disc, in the 78 era, everything was recorded direct-to-disc. We didn't have tape yet. and uh, But, of course, 78s don't have a very long playing time. So what, what direct-to-disc in the LP world means is you go in uh, and record one whole side of an album right to the disc. I mean, it's a mechanical disc that cuts, you know, a lacquer, a lacquer master that ultimately gets turned into a press that allows the pressing of records. So you can't stop it and start it. So once it starts, you're, you're on. So basically, you, we all go in. And from song one to song two to song three to song four, we just play it and mix it as it goes. And, uh, you know, we always had, you know, I always put together an outstanding band, just ridiculous uh, musicianship to be able to, to do that. And they got very excited about it. It was, it was a lot of fun. That first Selma Houston one that I produced, which is really the one that launched it in the modern, launched direct to disc in the modern era. And, uh, but, you know, you... <laughs> You were on your toes, you know, mixing. Mixing, for instance, is because if you're mixing a, uh, from a tape or from a disc, a hard disc, uh, you know, the, the guitar comes out the same, comes to you every single time, the same dynamics, same tone, everything, vocal, everything's identical every single pass. When you're doing it like this, uh, of course, everything, you know, they're human beings, and it's not going to be the absolute identical as it was on the last pass. Plus, you once in a while will have things that to throw you uh, a curveball. Like we were on the second side on Thelma's album, and it was it was a perfect take, as perfect as it was going to be. I was even happy with my mix. On, on, you know, on the on every song we got to the last song on the side, which was "Got to Get You Into My Life," the Beatles song, and got got through the first chorus. Everything's feeling great. I'm dancing. I'm just thrilled started the second verse no Thelma and I grabbed the fader vocal fader and shoved it and all I heard was I'm sorry <laughs> and of course what could I do as the producer but hit the talk back and say that's okay sweetie you sound incredible it'll we'll get it this time and, we're talking and we did 
We're talking with Bill Schnee. His book is Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack uh, of a Generation. You did such great work over a number of albums with Boz Skaggs. And we had Steve Lukather on a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. and he talked about the break that Boz gave him and, and all of those guys. It was really the beginnings of Toto with Jeff Porcaro and Luke and, and David Patient. And we learned in the book that you brought Boz, one of my favorite recordings of his, a great song, Miss Sun, and I love the description that uh, Percaro had about uh, a lope in that song. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's a, it's a great story because uh, you know uh, Jeff and I were really good friends, and he popped into the studio one day where I was mixing, and he uh, threw me a cassette. Literally, opened the door, threw me a cassette, and said, "Dig it." <laughs> and uh, I put it in, and I and what I heard were some grooves. Just he and David Page had gone in and just done some grooves, and uh, but they were great, and that was the beginnings of Toto. Well, they they put the band together and, and did some more demos, and one of them that I loved was Miss Sun, and I was convinced that's one of the songs that got them their record deal with CBS. So when the record came out, I went to Page and I said, "Where's Miss Sun?" And he said, "Yeah, we didn't use it." I said, "Why not?" <laughs> he said, "You know, because you know we want to go in a more rock direction." And I said, wow, that surprised me. So what I did, the first album I did with Boz, I called David. And I said, hey, David, what about Miss Sun? Can I have that for Boz? He, he would love it, I know. And he said, no, we're going to hold on to it. You never know. You know, we might need it. Uh, okay. And then after the, the, after the album came out and uh, CBS wanted to do a greatest hits package, they said, see if you can find something uh, for a single to promote the hits package. And so I called David again, and I said, "David, listen, uh, I, this is this is perfect for Boz, and it's perfect for you. And I'll tell you why. Uh, you know your role in Silk Degrees. David had actually written and co-arranged, written uh, most of the songs on Silk Degrees, Boz's breakout album. And um, uh, for when they went to do the second album, uh, the producer." Uh, wouldn't let David co-produce it. Page said he deserved it, and I think he probably did. It definitely did. And uh, so Dave Page didn't work with him, with him anymore. So here I am now, a couple of albums down the road of Boz, and I said, look, this is going to show everybody, you know, why Stoke Degrees was Stoke Degrees. This is your song. And so he let me have it. And uh, I actually took their demo and uh, worked and change the key. I worked it over and then uh, asked Jeff, Jeff, you know, the drums on this demo are great. Is there any sense doing them? And he said, well, we don't lose them, so let's try it. And if we improve it, we improve it. And we, uh, I don't know that we really improved it, uh, just maybe a little bit. He thought it was better, so I went with him. But, yeah, that's one of my favorite tracks, too. You worked on one of the great albums uh, of the rock era, uh, Steely Dan's Asia. I was surprised to learn that uh, Donald Fagan, and maybe I shouldn't be surprised, not really a fan of his own voice. Yeah, surprised me. You know, first we started on uh, the first song that uh, he put a rough vocal on and came in the control room, and I had it at a, what I thought was a you know, nominal level, and he always turned my voice down. And I went, <laughs> okay. I turned it down, and afterwards I said, it, you don't like your voice, do you? And said, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of unusual because, you know, lots of artists, that's all they listen to. Right, <laughs> you right. Know. 
Yeah. We had, had Jennifer uh, Warrens on the show a couple of years ago, and oh, yeah. we, we talked about her work. Uh, and, well, she was for a while. If you wanted an Oscar nomination for a song, <laughs> you put Jennifer Warren's voice on there. And uh, you put together Up Where We Belong. And when I say put together, you really had to do some major assembly uh, to match up Joe Cocker's work. And then he ends up winning a Grammy for it. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of funny because uh, the... the, the uh, the song had been mixed already, and Taylor Hackford, the director of the movie, didn't like the mix. So uh, they got a hold of me and asked to, for me to mix the mix it for them for the single. And uh, the, it came in without a track sheet. A track sheet, for those that don't know, is you know what comes with a tape uh, and that tells you what's on track one, two, three, four, and you know the twenty-four tracks. If that's what it is, with the kick, you know, snare, piano, all that stuff. And so there wasn't one, so I had to go through and make one, which is not that hard, just listening over and over to what, which, what they are. And then the other thing, though, is that there's a thing called a comp sheet, which is what there's more than one vocal performance, uh, where you switch, make the switches to get the, the performance. And so I had to go through and write all the lyrics out and do what I thought was the best one and uh, of each one, of each singer. And... It's funny enough, you know, Jennifer's were, I think there were two tracks and they were both quite good. Joe was like, I don't know, three or four tracks and he was not very good. He was, he would stop in the middle of, of a take and say, Stu, what's the line right there? And he was just not all together. He was, you know, learning the song, but I put it together and came out pretty good and got the, the Grammy and whatnot, which point I said, wait a minute, don't I deserve the Grammy? Just kidding. <laughs> Also seems like uh, you found a kindred spirit in the studio with the great Mark Knopfler. Yeah, Mark is just the, the you know the, I, I've been so fortunate to work with so many really great artists, and uh, he is a true artist in, in every sense of the word. And uh, and one of the guys you know like David Gates is another one from Bread, the guy mm. that sang all the Bread hits. Um, you know, if you meet these guys on the street and we're introduced to them, you'd never guess that they sang in front of hundreds of thousands of people, you know, and sold millions of records, just as nice and normal as you'd ever want to see. And our friend Ken... Mark is Mark's tremendous, and then, and then there's his guitar playing, yeah. which, you know, he's on everybody's best whatever list of guitarists in the world. Our friend Ken Franklin reminded me, too, that you also uh, mixed the last album uh, from Frankie and the Knockouts. Frankie Previtt's a great friend of the show, and, and the Jeff Porcaro played on that album. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, I produced it, actually. Um, yeah, Frankie was great. Uh, I loved, loved Frankie and loved working with him. It was a, a real pleasure. Well, the the book is tremendous. Uh, I read it in a night, couldn't put it down. I want to go back and, and read it again to dig deeper into some of the wonderful stories of what really is an amazing career. I uh, looked at that. The pictures of your studio, too, are absolutely beautiful. The book is Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. Uh, Bill Schnee, it's been a real treat. Thank you so much for visiting with us today. Oh, great. Thank you for having me. Did, by the way, did you go? Did you get the, any of the online stuff? I did, did yeah. It? The deleted themes, yeah. Oh, it was that's, terrific. That's kind of fun. You love it all. Uh, the book is yeah. great. Get your hands on it. You'll enjoy it. And if you if you love music, uh, you're going to really enjoy uh, the stories that Bill has to tell in this book. Bill, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Bill Schnee, with some great stories there. Love those love those inside behind the scenes stories that you know, 
even the artists sometimes don't, don't mm. know about, but the engineers, the producers, the guys in the booth uh, have got the scoop there. And Bill Schnee was a fascinating guy who literally has worked with everybody. And seen it all. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the, the scope of the work that he's done in both the music and the technology to capture the music is, is amazing. Yeah, and I, I realize how much he's done when I'm, I'm going through some of the things I want to ask him about, and, I'm, I'm, and I say... Oh, geez, forgot to ask him about Steely Dan's Asia. Hello. You know, when, when that's when that's for me an afterthought, that tells you about the remarkable work you've done. But our thanks to Bill. His book is a great read, Chairman at the Board, recording the soundtrack of a generation. And thanks to the wonderful Dee Dee Pfeiffer as well. Thanks to you for joining us. We'll catch you next time right here on Downtown, the podcast.